Today's reading, folks, is from Revelation 10. Revelation 10. Revelation 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, and a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot in the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing in the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing in the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It'll make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesize and make peoples and nations and languages and kings. Folks, I'm just going to pray for us quickly before John comes to speak to us this morning. Father, thank you for bringing us all here this morning. It's a, a beautiful, fresh winter's day. Father, we thank you for the change in the seasons as we see the kids wearing the, the Christmas jumpers. And we thank you for the, the crisp winter days. Father, we thank you again that it just shows that you're in control, Father. You're a God that's in control of everything. You're a God that even though has created the whole world, Father, created everything in control of everything, yet you're a God that also still loves us. Father, I just pray you'll, you'll help us all now in this building, from the youngest one right up to the oldest, Father. I'll pray you'll just settle us down. I pray you'll just open our hearts and minds, Father, to what's been taught right from the Sunday school rooms to John here this morning. And Father, I pray you'll just bless John. Just give him the words, Father, to open up your word to us this morning. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pete, for that. This morning we are in Revelation chapter 10. Uh, last week we covered 8 and 9, you remember that. And this will be our last week in Revelation until January. Uh, I am away next week uh, for a week, and Marcus is speaking next week, and then we are into our Advent series. So this will be our last week in Revelation until January, and then we'll be back into it. So I give you a wee break from all the apocalyptic stuff for a wee while, so... Let me ask you a question. How do you respond when and if, when and if you share the gospel with someone, if you speak about Jesus with someone, if you tell them about Jesus, how do you respond when the listener either attacks you or just doesn't want to know? 
How do you respond when you share the gospel, when you talk to people about Jesus? I'm sure you've done it in your own life, in your family, in your friends, in whatever, with whoever, your work colleagues. What, 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 how do you respond when they attack you? When they say, I don't want to know anything about that, don't want to, don't want to hear about that. How do you feel? Do you feel hurt? Do you feel that God has somehow let you down? Do you cry out, Lord, I am trying to be obedient here. I'm trying to make disciples. I'm trying to share the word. And all of a sudden, I'm being attacked for that very thing. I'm obeying you, and I'm being attacked. When that happens, do we become reluctant to do it again? Does it like put a stumbling block in our way when we say, no, no, I'm not going there again. Look what happened the last time. Well, how should we respond when we are attacked for sharing the Word of God or sharing Jesus with someone? How should we respond when we are attacked or people don't listen? Revelation chapter 10 will really practically help us in this situation. Now, I don't know if you, you, saw, you, you saw that when it was read there, but Revelation chapter 10 will practically help us and how to respond biblically when we share the gospel and people don't want to hear it. Revelation chapter 10, what John is displaying for us here is a couple of things. What God displays to John and then John writes down for us shows us a couple of things. One, it shows us his power and his authority. It shows us the certainty that his word and his plan will be fulfilled no matter what happens, that redemption and justice will occur. But it also shows us this, and this is the extremely practical part of this morning for us. It shows us our need to be faithful to his word. It shows us our need to be faithful to his word despite the reaction we may get, despite the reaction we may get. And folks, here's the truth. If we desire as a church, as Cornerstone Church, if we desire to be an outward-focused, mission-focused church, we will need to listen to what John says in Revelation 10 and take it on board. If we want to be a church that takes the gospel outside of this building to Rathfrey and to the surrounding areas, we will need to listen to what John says here because it will depend very much on whether we listen to this and take it on board. Because the reality is people will reject us. People will reject the message. People may slam a door in our face. They will mock. They will do whatever they do. But we must do it regardless. If you remember last week, we spoke on Revelation. I spoke on Revelation 8 and 9, and that was the sounding of the first six trumpets. Uh, and what happens in that sequence from trumpets 1 to 4, God's enemies are judged indirectly. God brings judgment on the earth, and his enemies are uh, indirectly affected by those judgments. After that, trumpets 5 and 6, God sends judgment on his enemies directly. He doesn't, there's no indirect, it's just he judges his enemies. And through these judgments, even those opposed to God must acknowledge that he is Lord, that he is God. But this acknowledgement does not lead to or imply repentance. 
Because remember, at the end of last week, at the end of chapter 9, those absolutely chilling, uh, heartbreaking words that the rest of mankind, even though they saw the plagues and, and saw what happened, they did not repent. Nevertheless, God is glorified whether they repent or not. God is glorified through Him enacting His justice. We looked at the impact of God's people, the, the judgments on God's people. First, they responded with silence, awe. Do you remember that? There was silence in heaven for around, I think it was half an hour, an hour. I can't remember which it was exactly. But, but there was silence and awe of His might, His majesty, His judgment. We saw how that must engage us with evangelism, taking the good news of the gospel out. We saw how we must be humbled by His judgments. And then we come to chapter 10. And chapter 10, again, is an interesting one because it's not the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Again, you would imagine that the sequential flow of this would be just all the trumpets are blown and then that, that's it, done. But no, there's, a, there's this other interlude here in chapter 10. There's this break again in chapter 10, just like there was between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Recall that we saw something in a similar chapter 6 and 7. John sees the Lamb open the six seals and then there's this break and he hears the sealing of the 144,000. Recall there that, that it was my opinion that those are all the people of God over all of time. And then he had this interlude, and then we saw the seventh seal open. It's the same pattern here again. Six trumpets are blown. There's an interlude. God wants to communicate something to us, and then the seventh will be blown. What we saw back in uh, chapter 6 and 7 was that that message of the sealing of the 144,000 was to say to us that even though people, people's, God's people will, will suffer, they are protected and secured eternally for His glory and their good. And today, what we see in this interlude in chapter 10 in John's vision, again, there will be a central point to proclaim. And it's this. It's our need to boldly proclaim His Word. Just as the central point of the sealing of the 144,000 was that God's people will suffer, and yet He protects us and seals us eternally, this point, the point here in chapter 10, is that we must proclaim the Word, no matter what the consequences. And I'm going to split it in three sections, verse 1 to 2, 3 to 7, 8 to 11, under the headings, the authority of the Word, the fulfillment of the Word, and our faithfulness to the Word. The authority of the Word. So let's start there with the authority of the Word. Chapter, the chapter opens with John seeing this mighty angel. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Right. Some argue that this is Christ Himself. Others say it's an archangel. In either case, whether you say it's Jesus or whether you say it's an archangel, the, the message is this. The message is this is God's representative wielding God's 
authority. We can get into the minutiae of, of whether it's Christ or not, and if, you, and if you look at the detail, you'll see that there are many things in that detail that would remind us that it, that, or, or make us think that it is possibly Christ. He had a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. Jesus is described like that after his resurrection. His face was like the sun. Legs like pillars of fire. Th those, are, those are things that would remind us, yes, this, this could well be Christ himself. But that's it's almost, it's not irrelevant, but it's, but it's not as important as the message. The message is this, this angel that, that appears is wielding God's authority. And he holds in his hand a small scroll. Now, this little scroll is the, the, the central feature of chapter 10, and it reminds us of the other scroll that we saw in 5 and 6, chapter 5 and 6. And so we would think, we would naturally think that this smaller scroll had something to do with the bigger scroll that was revealed to us in chapter 5 and 6. Remember in chapter 5, God himself held the scroll in his hand, and no one was worthy to open the scroll apart from Jesus. The lion, the lamb, he was worthy, and he came and he took the scroll and opened it. And what we said was in the scroll is important. What we said was in that large scroll was God's plan for redemption and judgment for all of time. That's what was in the first scroll. His plan to redeem and his plan to judge. This smaller scroll that this angel has seems to have similar content. Chapter 10 and chapter 11 concern God's judgment on his enemies, protection for his people, and in the midst of suffering, and ultimate, ultimate victory. Thus, the smaller scroll seems to have similar content to what the larger one had. Remember, only Jesus himself could open the scroll. No one else was worthy. Only he could do it. But John himself will take the little scroll. That's significant. Only Jesus could open the other one. John takes this one. That makes us believe that the little scroll contains part of what the larger scroll contains. Not at all. Not at all. This is God's revelation of his plan of redemption to mankind. To mankind. What this would lead us to believe is that this is possibly, I say possibly, but this is possibly scriptures. This is possibly the word of God revealed to us, this little scroll. Potentially the word, the Bible. Note, the angel holding the scroll puts one foot on the sea and one foot on dry land. And, and that's, that's again symbolic. It's not it's not a literal reference, and we need to get this symbolically into our head. When we see that, we see it elsewhere in the Old Testament, for example. We see it in Haggai 2, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and then on the dry land. What, what this angel is representing is that he has authority over all of creation, all of the earth. All of the earth is under the authority of this angel, and by implication, under the authority of the scroll that he holds. The Bible, the Word of God. 
Thus, the scroll held in the hand of the angel with all authority shows us God's plan. He has written his plan. He has revealed his plans to his servants. This is us. God, in this vision of potentially Christ, is showing us this little word that he has given his people, and in this little word that he has given his people, it is our authority. Let me ask you, what's your view of the Scriptures? What's your view of the Bible? Well, in most of the creeds, and in, in some, I think it's in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says this about the Bible. It says, the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. The Bible is our only rule of faith and practice. What does that mean? That means we hold the Word of God to be our ultimate authority. Faith, what we believe. Practice, what we do. So whatever the Bible says we must believe, we believe it. Whatever the Bible says we must do, we endeavor to do it. What this means is this. The Bible trumps, is above any man's authority, any church's tradition, and any of our own opinions. The Bible trumps it all. This is our sole rule for faith and practice. When the Bible clearly reveals a truth, we believe it with all our heart. When the Bible clearly gives a command to do something, we make sure we're trying to do it. So, for example, some people write, okay, we can get into like we can get into the head rack and stuff of Revelation and we can be like, right, what does this mean? What does this say? I, 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 can, I can clearly tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus is coming back. Yes? Amen? Right. We know he's coming back. What do we believe then? We believe he's coming back. Since the Bible is our only rule of faith, we believe that Jesus is returning. When the Bible says that we are to flee from sexual immorality, guess what we should do? Flee, flee, not, not ponder to, not flirt with, not, not mess about with, flee sexual immorality, since the Bible is our final authority for faith and practice. Folks, do we genuinely believe that God's Word is our only authority? In the world we live in today, you will be told on repeat, on repeat, that your opinion matters more than anything. It doesn't. It doesn't. What we read in the Scriptures, if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, if we're a follower of His, this, this is our only rule for faith and practice. It has all authority. All authority.
So what we see here is this angel with this little scroll with all authority. And then we see in verse 3, the angel calls out. So we have him here. He had a little scroll in his hand and his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the dry land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, these seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write what I heard from heaven, but I, but I heard from heaven saying, seal up what is in the seven th thunders. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write them down. Right. What does this roaring picture mean? Several times in the Old Testament, you see God is said to roar, signifying his might, his authority, his power. But in most cases, most cases in the Old Testament, when God roars, when he, when he signifies his authority through this, it means that he's about to wreak vengeance on his enemies. Joel 3.16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Amos 3.68, we see the same thing, God roaring with his word. Is it, it says this, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come in a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. But who can prophesy? And what we see here in Revelation 10, as God's representative roars, his servant is about to prophesy against his enemies in favor of God's people. It says this, When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write down. But what I heard from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write them down. What's going on here? Why could John not write down what the seven thunders have said? Why is he not able to write them down? Again, the Old Testament gives us some clues. Thunder is synonymous in the Old Testament with judgment. It's just, it's everywhere in the Old Testament. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against, this is 1 Samuel uh, 2.10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them he will thunder in heaven. And so what we can, what we can almost inexplicably inexplicably say is that this is a judgment. A judgment. Now, what it says here is really, really interesting about mystery. As we noted earlier, the, the scroll is, a cent, is central to this chapter. This little scroll is the center to this chapter. And remember, this little scroll is, is not complete as the big one was. In, in chapters 5 and 6, this is incomplete. This, this scroll does not give us everything we need to see or everything that there is, should I say. Thus, the words spoken by the thunders represent something that we do not know. Something that we do not know. Something that only God knows. And He keeps some knowledge to Himself. Look what it says in verses 6 and 7. It says this, And I swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay. 
but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants and his prophets. Now, these seven thunders, we don't know what they are. We can assume that they're thunders, we can assume then that they're judgments. But what is this mystery? What is this mystery that is to be revealed? Right. At this point, you're probably thinking, well, it's a mystery, John. We don't know what it is. We can't know what it is because it's a mystery. But the way the Bible uses the word mystery is not the same way that we use the word mystery. We use the word mystery as in some sort of detective thing, right? So you're watching some detective thing on TV, uh, and there's a mystery comes along, and, and you, you're just trying to figure it out because you don't know what it is, and it's, tr it's trying to be figured out all along. You don't know, you can't understand it. That is not the way the Bible is using the word mystery here. One prominent Greek lexicon says the word is, is something formerly unknown but now revealed. So when we see the word mystery here in this text, it is something formerly unknown, but it has been revealed. So what could it be? What is the mystery that is now revealed? Paul says this. He says the word, he identifies with this word mystery. He says this in Colossians 1. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What was the mystery? Hidden for ages, but now revealed to his saints. The gospel. That's what it is. The good news of Jesus Christ, that is what it is. That is what the mystery is here. It is logical to conclude that the mystery of God that we need revealed in the Bible is the gospel. The gospel in its fullness. And what we will see when the seventh trumpet is blown is that the message of the gospel will be fulfilled. And the message of the gospel is very, very simple. As I've said before, someone said to me one time, football is an easy game complicated by fools. The gospel is an easy message complicated by fools. The gospel is this. Christ came into the world to save sinful people. He did what he did. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve on the cross. He went to the grave. He rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And one day he will come back. And when he comes back, he's coming back for the church, and he is coming back to judge those who have not accepted him as Christ. That's it. It's really simple. And we have complicated it and made it difficult to understand. That is the mystery that has now been revealed. And we know it, and it will be fulfilled. The fulfillment will be the judgment of his enemies. Folks, sometimes, and even in conversations I've had in Revela about Revelation and and the severity of the judgments on, on those who don't believe. 
Let me be clear. Before we come to Christ, we are, the Bible tells us, enemies of God. Enemies of God. Let me, let me just so that we're 100% certain on where that comes from. Romans 5, verse 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by this life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have re received reconciliation. Folks, before Jesus, we are enemies of God. And we deserve judgment. We deserve judgment. Folks, something else that has come to my mind this week, and this, this may be applicable to you, and, I, and I, it may not, and it may be a part of your situation right now, and it may not, but I feel as if I need to say it this morning. Don't be surprised. Now this is, think of your life. Think of the many situations that are going on in your life. Don't be surprised when non-believers work against you and against the church. Don't be surprised. Why? Because they are enemies of God. enemies of God. Sometimes I think we're, we're, we're a wee bit naive when it comes to this stuff. We think, oh, well, you know, oh, they're good people. Why would they be doing this to me? Or why would they be doing that to me? Or why would they be against the church? Or why would they be against... They're good people. They're decent people. No, enemies of God is what they are. And Satan will use them to destroy your life and destroy the church. Don't be surprised. You could have a situation in your life right now where people are actively working against you or against the church. Don't be surprised. They are enemies of God. And the scary thing is, if they do not repent, God will have His justice. God will have His justice. And His purposes will be fulfilled. So He has authority these purposes will be fulfilled. But what does that mean for us? What are we to do? And this is what we see in verses 8 through to 11. Then a voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that is open. John, go and take the scroll that is open. You can see again, this is not the same as the scroll before because that John is going to take this one. He is going to do something with it. Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll of the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told, you must again prophesy about, about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Right, okay, what's going on here? This is a picture of what it is like to be faithful to the Word of God. 
This is a picture of what it is like to be faithful to the Word of God. The, the voice from heaven commands John to take, and John does. This is, this is a symbolizing his agreeing to proclaim the Word. And you must, it says, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. Take the Word. But the Word of God is not something that John just takes casually, take it or leave it, moves on to something else. No, what is he told to do with it? This is significant. What is he told to do with this scroll? Eat it. Eat it. The Bible tells us that what we're to do with God's Word is dwell on it richly. John is to consume the Word of God. He must feed on the Word. Deuteronomy 8, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 when he was tempted by Satan. He says this, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does that mean? He means that it is nourishment to him. He has fed on it. He has consumed it. John takes and eats the scroll. He feeds on the Word of God. He gets the Word of God inside him, and he's nourished by it. And what's the response? The angel tells him it would be sweet to taste, but it will be bitter in the stomach. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is sweeter than honey, than the drippings of the honeycomb. But why the sweet and why the bitter? Because the reality is this. The Word of God should be sweet to the believer. But it will often, often be bitter to those who hear it. It will often be bitter to those who hear it. John was going to have to go and prophesy about nations and kings and who would not repent, who would hear the Word of God, but they wouldn't turn. They wouldn't confess their sin. They wouldn't turn to Jesus. They would not repent. They would not listen. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see instances of this in the Old Testament. Again, Ezekiel 2 and 3, Ezekiel is told to go to the nation of rebels. They are, they are stubborn. They will not repent. Ezekiel is to proclaim the entire Word faithfully including lamentation, mourning, and woe to convert the people? No. Let's listen to what God tells them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, do not be afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they refuse to hear it, or whether, or for they are, and they will refuse to hear it, for they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel is told to go and eat, the, the, metaphorically eat the scroll that will be bitter to these people, and they will not repent. They will not repent. They do not listen. They refuse to hear. Elsewhere, Isaiah 6, one of the most famous passages in Scripture, right? One of the most famous passages in Scripture when it comes to, to geeing people up for evangelism, right? 
if I'm going to G you up for evangelism, I'm going to use, right, this is what I'm going to use, and this is what you've heard before, right? So, but let me just break it down, right? Let me break it down, Isaiah 6. Isaiah's commission from the Lord. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom shall go for us? Right? You've heard that. You've, you've heard it in a mission convention. You've heard it somewhere. And it's like, right, who shall go for us? Then I said, what's the response from Isaiah? Here I am. Send me. And when we hear that, we have visions of glory and greatness. And we're going to go to the nations. And we're going to see loads of people saved. And loads of people redeemed. And loads of people come to Jesus. And it's all going to be wonderful. Because I said, here I am. Send me. And he said, go to the people. Keep on hearing. And say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, lest they hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Isaiah's command, Isaiah's mission was to go to people and make sure they don't repent. Do you see that? Yay! Who wants that one? Do you see what it says? Do you, literally, look, if you've got a Bible, open it up and look at Isaiah 6. These are the words that it says. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And I will say, I'll go for us. And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Brilliant. Um, brilliant. We're on the way. And he said, and this is what God said to Isaiah, Keep on, tell them this. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. There's a bitterness to that. There is a bitterness to that, but there is a faithfulness to that as well. The words of the gospel, the words of Scripture are sweeter than the honeycomb on the lips of a believer. But to the non-believer, to the one who refuses to repent, the one who refuses to come to Jesus, they are bitter. They are bitter. And that will be the bitterness for John, just as it was for Ezekiel, and just as it was for Isaiah. So what is the conclusion of this chapter? The conclusion is this, to summarize the message of this chapter. There are aspects of God's judgment that we do not know. The seven thunders sealed up where John wasn't allowed to write them down. We do not know what they are. And you know what? We have to be okay with that. There are stuff that, there's stuff that God knows that we don't know, and we have to be okay with that. We do not know everything. We do not have all the details. But God has given to us the message that we do need. He has given us the authority of His Word he has revealed his plan for redemption and justice in here. And it is our sole authority for faith and practice. What else? We are to be faithful to the Word no matter what the response. Is it up to us how people respond? No. Is it up to us to, to manipulate or 
cajole people into faith? No. We are to be faithful to the Word of God. I love opening up wee cans of worms in our home group every week. As Stanley will know, I call it throwing a wee grenade in every now and again. Uh, but we're in, and I threw this one out this week, which was great. Where in the Scriptures do we see, and I've said it over the last couple of weeks, where when we're proclaiming the gospel or when you're sharing the gospel with someone, where in the Scriptures have you ever saw someone saying, you know what you need to do, ask Jesus into your heart? Nowhere. Nowhere. The message of the gospel is this, repent. Repent. Turn to faith. Turn to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of your sins. The message of the gospel is not give this lovely Jesus a bit of a go. The message of the gospel is repent of sin and turn in faith to Christ Jesus. What do we learn from this passage? What do I learn from this passage for us as a church? You see, the reality is this for us as a church, and for me, especially as your teaching pastor, uh, the, the temptation is for me is to leave stuff out that might be better or that might be controversial or that might lead to a difference of opinion. Folks, the reality is if I were to do that, I would be failing in my calling I would be failing in what God has tasked me to do. I must teach the whole of Scripture. The things that hurt, the things that prick us, the things that we don't like, the things that rub us up the wrong way, we must hear them. We must eat them. We must consume them. What about us as individuals? What are the implications for us as individuals as we go out into the world to proclaim the gospel because that's what we must do. The first thing I would say is this. For us as individuals, the biggest implication is this. Are we eating the Word? John was given this scroll to eat, to consume, that it would be part of him, that, that he would just be able to regurgitate it when he needed to. Are we reading the Word of God? Are we studying it? Is it our sole authority for our life, for our faith, for our practice? Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it? And then, are we willing for the sake of Jesus to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be marginalized because the taste of the gospel and an unbeliever's ear will often be bitter. I don't need to tell you again. I've told you umpteen times how all the apostles ended up. Not many of them ended up with a holiday home in Cranfield. They didn't. They didn't. Not many of them ended up playing golf in Florida in retirement. Not many of them. 
they all, bar John, ended up dead for the sake of Jesus and for his gospel because it was bitter in the ears of an unbelieving people. Are we done with our platitudes? Are we, the, are we done with trying to appease people into the kingdom of God? We should be. Tell the truth. Tell it the way it is. And let God do what God does. The glorious good news of the gospel is this. That even though it may be better in some years, some will come to Jesus. For those whom he called, he saved. So, this representative of God comes, speaks with all authority, gives the authority, the message of the gospel to us. The mystery has been revealed. It is the gospel. And then we are told to go and proclaim the good news. Be encouraged if you're mocked, if you're scorned, if you're attacked for sharing the gospel, you're in good company. You're in good company. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that it would be, I pray that it would be eh, sweet to the lips of the believers in this place. I pray that we would feast on it. I pray that we would uh, consume it. And I pray that you would speak to us through it. Father, we thank you for it. We thank you that you have revealed uh, what you want us to know. Not everything, but what you want us to know in your word. Help us to be faithful to it. That's all that you're asking that we be faithful to it. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.